Welcome to the Episcopal Church of the Holy Communion. Thank you for joining us for this sermon. You can find all of our sermons at holycommunion.net and our Facebook, YouTube, and podcast channels. Consider hitting like or subscribe. Consider sharing this sermon with others. It helps us to reach more people like you. We are so thankful to those who support our ministry. You can give today at holycommunion.net backslash give. In the name of our loving, life-giving, and liberating God, amen. Please be seated. Under the dome of a tiny 12th century mosque, near the top of the Mount of Olives, there is a footprint in the rock. And legend tells us that this is the last footprint on earth of the one that Muslims call the prophet Issa, the one that we call Jesus. And standing in that little tiny mosque, you can hear the bells from the nearby Greek Orthodox monastery. It's called Viri Galilei, or in English, Men of Galilee, as in the line that we just heard from the book of Acts, Galileans, why are you standing here looking toward heaven? Imagine if somebody built a building after a question that the angels made making fun of you. One can imagine the disciples gesturing to the sky. Didn't you just see? Jesus lifted off. Of course we're standing here looking up toward heaven. The end of Jesus' story is a very strange ending, isn't it? There's a legend, not a legend, there's a story that um, Bishop Jack Spong uh, was once talking with the cosmologist Carl Sagan. And uh, Carl Sagan did some quick math in his head and said, well, even if Jesus kept accelerating and reached the speed of light, uh, he's not yet left the Milky Way. He's somewhere inside our galaxy. It's a strange ending to the story of Jesus's life on Earth. Jesus is risen from the dead, then he rises off to the heavens. It's odd, but there's a footprint on the Mount of Olives, so what are you going to do? To understand the ascension, I think you need to consider the view from the Mount of Olives. And you need to go back to an earlier story from the same hill in the 21st chapter of Luke, Acts's the second volume of the Gospel of Luke. In that 21st chapter, the disciples are standing admiring the stones of the temple, their size and beauty and decoration. And the theologian James Allison argues that this story in Luke 21 and its correlates in the other Gospels, Mark and Matthew, that they tell a critical moment if you're going to understand this Jesus of Nazareth that we claim to follow. And Allison says that the temple was built to be an object of desire. The stones were meant to impress, to evoke desire. And that word desire with James Allison is a very important and powerful one because he's a follower of a French philosopher named René Girard. And René Girard's primary contribution to philosophy is something called mimetic theory. And mimetic has the same root as the word mime. Basically, Girard taught that we borrow our desires from others. 
We learn to want what we want by watching others want. And it's a whole theory about how humans come into conflict with one another, how our deep psyches operate. We learn to want by watching others want. We learn to desire by watching others desire, mimetic theory. And, and Allison's a follower of that line of thought. And he says that the temple was designed to be a center of desire. Herod the Great massively expanded the temple in the years just before Jesus was born, doubling its size. Herod fancied himself a modern-day Solomon, and he rebuilt the temple as one of the largest projects, largest building projects in the first century. He wanted you to want that temple. Herod's temple spoke of power. The stones are massive. You can still see some of them today. They're some of the largest building blocks ever hewn. And the courts would have been visible for miles around, especially from up there on the Mount of Olives, where you look down into the complex. Thousands of pilgrims streamed into the temple to perform sacrifice, to celebrate the high holy days, and to, to perform exchange. And they came from the world around. And so it's little wonder that those disciples marveled at the stones, at the decoration. Allison says, underneath all their admiration is a basic human desire. They believe they are walking with the Messiah, the anointed one, the liberator of Israel. And as they admire those stones, they are imagining themselves standing within the gates of that temple, that glorious temple. The kingdom has been restored to Israel. Jesus has expelled the Roman occupiers. He has come to rule, and his followers will have power in that powerful building. Jesus interrupts that expectation, that desire, in Luke 21. You know what he says. The days will come when not one of those stones will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. Don't desire that seat of power. Don't put your energy there. The temple is not the point. Jesus tells them the temple is not the point. It's a dangerous thing for a religious leader to say inside a beautifully renovated, expensive new church. Uh, though perhaps we have a little bit of an edge because in a few minutes when the service is over, I'm going to ask as many of you as can to stay here and we're going to rearrange the whole space. We've gotten rid of some of our sacred ways of thinking of architecture, right? But there's still this difficulty. Still, I'm telling you, the temple is not the point. That's Jesus. Don't bother admiring the stones of the temple. They're about to be torn apart. When we want to cling to symbols of status, when we want to control systems of belief, when we attach too closely to a particular leader or a brand, Jesus says, let go. Which brings us back to today's story. As the story of the ascension opens, the disciples are there on the Mount of Olives with Jesus, and they ask, when are you going to restore the kingdom? Those disciples haven't moved very far past that earlier chapter, have they? They're still wondering, when are we getting our seats of power? Another theologian, uh, Willie Jennings, likes to point out that the disciples, if they got what they had asked for, would have received a tiny amount of worldly power. 
the followers of Jesus left to their own devices would have temporarily become minor government bureaucrats in the running of Jerusalem. Jesus' followers' imaginations were too small for the Holy Spirit. As Christians, we have to ask ourselves, when we see displays of power, whether we believe the story behind those displays. Is power really the ability to enforce your will on others? Is that power? Is power the ability to control and manipulate? Is power the capacity to accumulate wealth? Is that what Christians mean by power? Or could power for Christians be something else entirely? Could power be subversive? Could power be the capacity to stop, to stoop, to listen to someone living on the street? Could power be the capacity to lift up the lowly? Could power be the capacity to love the unloved? Could power look like bringing needed health care to those who can't access it? Could real power be what happens when those who have been excluded find a place to belong? Willie Jennings says, writ large, we Christians, we still don't know how to imagine power. We're still too busy admiring the so-called temples of power. And we risk missing what the Spirit is offering. So how do we learn to attend to the Spirit? Well, first, some of us are going to have to tear some things down. Okay, so as long as we're introducing 20th century French philosophical terms like mimetic theory, I'm going to do one more. And the term comes from the philosopher Jacques Derrida. And it's a good term when we talk about the destruction of the temple because Derrida's term is deconstruction. And Derrida uses deconstruction to talk about dismantling the old systems and structures of meaning in our world. And the term is all the rage these days on TikTok especially among folks who call themselves post-evangelicals. Put the word deconstruction into whatever video uh, kind of service you use, whether that's TikTok or Instagram or YouTube, put that word deconstruction in there and you will find video after video that you can scroll through of folks talking about their deconstruction journey. I know some of us just thought of this as like becoming Episcopalian back in the day but this term is getting applied. Usually it means that they've let go of fundamentalist beliefs, literal readings of scripture, patriarchal understandings of gender, homophobia, racism, whiteness, party affiliation. If you're on a deconstruction journey, if you are sorting out which pieces might fit into a new arrangement of faith, know that you're on a journey with the spirit. Keep searching among the rubble. And as long as you are deconstructing old beliefs, I think Jesus would ask you, deconstruct the systems of desire as well. If you've left a church behind, maybe stop following their social media posts, let go of critiquing the leaders, and stop listening to the sermons with rage. Also, don't let your energy get sucked into a news cycle about politicians spewing hatred and division in the name of faith. Don't let your emotions get caught up in the games of power being played there. Even if you find yourself testifying in a hearing with these folks or marching in a protest, you can be free from the status games. 
And throughout the civil rights era, Dr. King, he preached something pretty radical about the treatment of his so-called enemies. And Dr. King said that he was working not just for his own freedom, not just to free black people from oppression, but to free white people from racism as well. You've got to love your enemies, he said. That wasn't original to him, that's Jesus. And King knew the desire for power doesn't just hurt those who end up on the bottom of the ladder. It hurts those at the top as well. Top-down power dehumanizes the powerless and the powerful. It's why it's kind of tricky, this ascension, because it's often depicted in troubling directional ways. We still live in such a top-down world, such a hierarchical society. So sometimes it's inconvenient that we believe that Jesus ascended up. We sing all sorts of hymns about him being on high to reign. And that's, I say, inconvenient because ascension is not about exaltation, I would argue. Ascension is not about exaltation, but escape. I want to read for you the Collect for Ascension Day. And Collect is that prayer that we pray at the beginning of the service. The Feast of the Ascension was on Thursday. Listen to how this Collect for the Feast of the Ascension begins. Almighty God, whose blessed Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Christ ascended so that he might fill all things. Christ went up so that he might spread out. God's work will always be bigger than we can grasp. God's work is always wider than we can hold. God is always bigger than our viewpoint. God can't be contained by our party. All containers will fall to dust, and God will keep moving. In order to understand the ascension— to make sense of that footprint enshrined on the Mount of Olives, you have to see the pattern. Every time people want to take Jesus and install him in a throne of power, he escapes. Every time they ask Jesus when he will give them power, he says, you're missing the point. When Mary on Easter morning tries to grab hold of the risen Christ, he says, don't cling to me. Christianity isn't about the destination, not for Jesus. The way of Jesus isn't a system of belief as much as a posture of seeking. Let me say that again. The way of Jesus isn't a system of belief as much as it is a posture of seeking. Jesus ascends to heaven itself to frustrate all our human desires for control and certainty. So, Galileans, quit standing there looking up toward heaven. Jesus has gone to fill all things. Your work is to find Jesus, not just where you've been taught to look, but everywhere and in everyone. Amen.